But everybody give a wild round of applause for Pastor J.P. Dorsey. Thanks, man. Love you guys. I wanted to preach on uh, receiving the coronavirus as the mark of the beast, but um, Pastor Wally said I couldn't do that. He wanted me to preach on something less controversial and talk about sex. So that's what I'm here to do. Um, uh, for those of you that I haven't met, this is, this is my home church. This is where I grew up. This is family, and uh, so you're related to me whether you like it or not. I'm sorry about that. And uh, so we travel back in time, uh, 1993, where I gave my life to Jesus, and somewhere back in there I was baptized and uh, received my call to the ministry. Uh, very shortly thereafter, Pastor Aiken was the pastor at the time and uh, didn't know me from, from Adam. And I was going through, as a new believer, just trying to say, okay, 19 years old, where's my life headed? And I felt like I was called to ministry. And I said, Lord, if, I'm, if that's the way I'm supposed to go, it's not where I was thinking at all. You're just going have to have to let me know somehow. Like, I need a confirmation. You ever been there? You're just like, I, like this is a big deal. I need, I need like more than just my feelings to go on. And in the middle of a sermon, I'll never forget, uh, Pastor Aiken stopped. And with his missing finger, so his middle finger, he pointed at me. And said, you, right in the middle of the sermon, he stopped and he pointed at me. He said, you, called to the ministry. And then turned around and stopped, just kept preaching again. And um, I was like, well, I'll take that. And um, right here was, you know, where I had just my formative experiences in the Lord. And right here, 24 years ago, uh, I became an intern. And I remember that uh, it was a, a Saturday and Pastor Aiken called me. I'd never spoken here before. And... Um, he said to me, he said, uh, I need you to preach on Sunday. The person who was supposed to preach actually had a heart attack on Saturday. And I uh, said, I need you to preach. And I said, I can't do that. I don't have a sermon. And he said, lesson number one, always have a sermon. I'll see you tomorrow morning. <laughs> full of grace and truth, full of just grace and truth. And I showed up, and I remember I preached on Job chapter 28. And um, I was preaching on Job chapter 28, and there's this passage in there where it says, the Lord will break the fangs of the wicked. And um, I was, you know, I, I, my only model for preaching, brand new preaching, you know, when people start preaching, you kind of imitate people that, that you have been around. And so I was building up to the moment where I was going to smack the pulpit like Pastor Aiken. And I thought that was going to be the moment when he breaks the fangs of the wicked. And uh, right at that moment, I smacked the pulpit and with great just intensity, I shouted, and he will break the wangs of the wicked. And he might, I don't know. But um, that was the first time I talked about sex from this pulpit. Uh, this is the second. And so I'm really, really looking forward to it. This is just my home. My mom and dad, my mom said, don't embarrass me. I don't know if that's already done or not, but I'll do my best uh, not to do that. Uh, certainly will. But I, I really, really appreciate uh, the opportunity to be here. And I thought it was interesting, Pastor Wally says, I want you to come and preach on sex. I think it'll be okay. And then he chooses not to show up. So, uh, so that way I think that if things don't go well, he can show up and be like, I had no idea he was going to say that and throw me under the bus. So if that's what happens, you'll know it was all part of an elaborate ruse on him. No, I'm kidding. He wouldn't do that to you. But I'm actually really uh, thrilled to be here. And I think it's very, very important. You know, any kind of real discipleship in following Jesus Christ, it should touch our minds the way we think. It should touch our, our feet and the way we walk. And it should touch everything in between. Our wallet, how we give, our hearts, how we feel. And it should touch even in between there, how we interact with our own sexuality. That's what discipleship is. Bringing our entire selves to become followers of Jesus Christ in a way that 
that's whole and that impacts people around us in a way that's meaningful. And the minute that we begin to say that, immediately we start, I think that there are a number of responses, and that's what we'll deal with today, that somehow we think that our sexuality is separated or is, or is completely wholly uh, other than our spiritual life, that we have a physical life, and that is governed maybe by God's laws, but it doesn't have any spiritual content to it. And then I have my spiritual life, which is the stuff that I see when my eyes are closed. It's invisible. I feel it. It impacts me. But our spiritual life and our physical lives are 100% interacted together. We learn about our spirituality from the way that we interact with people. People who love, we get loved well. We're able to receive love by God better. We're not loved well. It's harder for us to receive love from God. That There is a relationship between the way we live our physical lives and the way we interact with God. And so we want to chat with that about that for just a little bit today. And I really just want to accomplish something over probably about the next 40 minutes if I can. And if I can put it this way, I just want to kind of reunite two old friends. And by that I mean our bodied experiences, how we live in this body, specifically sexuality, but not only that way, and our spiritual lives. Now, if you're here and you are not married yet, uh, and I'm including students in this, and some of you are like, get the children out. My 11-year-old is in here. I'm perfectly uh, comfortable with that. If you're not, that's cool. I'll understand if you jet to the back door screaming and shrieking. That's fine, too. But I think as students, it's extremely important that we get through these core questions about the purpose and function of sexuality before we become sexual. How many know fixing an airplane is something I want done on the ground? How many know it's easier to train up a child than to fix an adult? So these are things that we should be thinking about now, and I hope we can help with that a little bit. If you are uh, not going to be married, you either have been or you say, I'm not going to be, well, there are obvious differences between sexuality and the rest of our human relationships. Some of these core ideas that we're going to talk about impact the way we do the rest of our relationships. People who tend to be uncomfortable with sexual affection tend to be uncomfortable with other kinds of affection. People who tend to be very kind of using in the way that they think about other people sexually, tend to use people in other ways. So if you listen closely, you will hear things that will apply to you in other kinds of relationships in your life. And also, I think we just have to admit that we have some significant challenges uh, inside the church when it comes to how we are engaging with sexuality in the context of our married relationships. And I'm believing for uh, great, great grace today. Because here is the fact the fact is, is that we act sometimes in the community of faith like sex is some big secret. But all I know is somebody somewhere is squeezing it in. We started off with two people in the garden. There are now seven billion people on the planet. So, at least seven billion times within the last hundred years, somebody managed to have sex. Yes? That's 70 million times a year. I mean, the average globally is very, very good. We are being productive at this. My children and I have witnessed sex. We have seen the houseflies doing it in our home. We have seen the dragonflies doing it. We saw two robins doing it. That is the state bird. I feel like that's a little undignified in the front yard. We were in a pet store and saw two tortoises so engaged. That was not nearly as exciting as you might think. And I hate to say it, but I suspect that there are some folks in this room that may have actually been involved in this activity. It is quite popular with people. The truth is, is that sex is everywhere. It is 
on the TV, it is in the pet store, it is in the bedroom, it is on Netflix, it is in the mall, it is in the billboards, it is in the music, it is in the books, it is in the magazines, it is in the checkout aisle at the grocery store. It is at the museums, it is at the psychologist's office, it's in the midst of our conflict, it's in the junior high classroom. And yet somehow it's not a regular topic of serious conversation in the community of faith. But what it means to be human, we are image of God, is what it means to be like God. Those two things have to interact with each other. And so I'm incredibly grateful. Uh, my home church, we began a journey probably about eight years ago of intentionally engaging on the issue of sexuality. And, um, you know, it can be uncomfortable at first. I remember um, uh, my lead pastor, Pastor Sam Reifkogel, is just one of the great uh, communicators and leaders of our age. He stood up in a service very much like this, and he said, today we're going to talk about sex. And they had some of the same reactions. I don't know if you all know this. I wish we could play a video of it. When I said sex, some people had a physical reaction, this sort of a little lurch. And so he detoxed us from that. And for about five minutes straight, he just said sex, 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 sex. And by, you know, about two minutes in, everybody started to grow comfortable. About four minutes in, people started chanting. And then we had to shut it down. We had to shut it down. When people start chanting sex, you have to shut it down. But I think that it's important that we get comfortable with this, with this conversation. Um, and to that end, what I'd like to talk about today is this idea, a wall, a door, and a garden. Or some thoughts about how, everybody say how. That word is operative in the way that I want to handle this subject today. Or some thoughts about how we think about sex. So why don't we go ahead and pray. And uh, while we're praying, you can pray uh, that the Lord would have mercy on you, that you make it through and endure through this message. You can sneak out the back if you want. You can quick invite your friends and be like, we're talking about sex, get here now. You can pray with us, or you can flip in your Bibles the Song of Solomon, of course, where we will be for the next little bit. So why don't we go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for today. Thank you for your goodness. I thank you that we, we come into the community of faith to be transformed, to be like you. And that impacts every way that we live our lives. That you are the one who made us to be people who see and taste and touch, people who make love, people who feel emotions. You made all of that. You are in the midst of that. And that you are not offended by it. You're not scared of it. In fact, when it fulfills the purpose for which you created, you rejoice and you are glad at the good gifts that you have given to us. And so we pray today, reframe how we think about some things, maybe bring some development and some challenge and some growth to our hearts. And for those of us that maybe that's not a part of our world right now, would you connect the dots for us and help us see that the way that we're talking about sexuality has implications for the way that we treat the way that we, the people that we love, the people that we care about. It has implications for the way we treat people that we want to know that they are loved, we want them to know, and that we want to receive love from in other ways. It impacts all of that. So help us to connect the dots. Make it a meaningful, productive time. Bless Pastor uh, Wally and Pastor Val. Just pray you'd protect their uh, household. Help Pastor Wally get ready, a get up and get well a thousand times fast. Not just 500 like Pastor Joel prayed. That's little faith. A thousand times faster. A thousand times faster, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. <laughs> Amen. I'm sorry about that, man. It was a very specific number, 500 times faster. I'm like, why not 1,000? We'll up the ante. I can trust God for 1,000. Can you trust God for 1,000? All right, we can do that together. 10,000, let's just keep up. Maybe we could just say that God would heal him right now. How about that? That would be fantastic. So if you grab Song of Solomon, and um, while you're there, I want to give you a little bit of background. We're going to be in Song of Solomon chapter 1 and Song of Solomon chapter 8, the very beginning and the very end. And while you're flipping there, I want to give you if I can, a little bit of kind of background 
in philosophy. And this is going to be super, super simple and minimalist. So for those of you, if you are a philosophy major in here, yes, I am drastically being reductionist in the way that we think about philosophy. But I want to maybe uh, give us a way of thinking because every single one of us, we engage in our physical world through a philosophy of what we think that world is of what we think this material world is. So I want to kind of oversimplify and suggest to you that we can reduce almost all philosophies, the way that we interact with our bodies, what we eat, the world that we live in, everything, in three different ways. And the first is there might be some people uh, in this room who are a little bit of a nihilist. And a nihilist is simply this. I deny that there's any real meaning in the world that I live in. And so what I eat really doesn't matter. What I do really doesn't matter. And so we get into this kind of place where it's like, it's a very sort of cynical, negative, kind of just uh, way of engaging life because nothing matters. The Ecclesiastes, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. There is nihilism right there. So that person experiences joy, but that joy is sucked right away because they believe, and, and from their perspective, there is no real value in what they just did. It's all meaningless. And by the way, once you believe that way, things do actually become meaningless. Because the way that you think about things does change the way that you experience them. Yes? So we have a nihilist. Everyone say nihilist. You drop that on Scrabble. That'll be fantastic. And then we have a hedonist. A hedonist is someone who says, I actually agree with that first person. There is no real value in the world that we live in. But my approach, instead of getting all molly grubbed about it and depressed and discouraged, is I'm just going to eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. And so I'm going to suck every last piece of pleasure out of the world that we live in. And um, I know that it's meaningless, but it's really kind of the only strategy I got. So it's an optimistic version of nihilism. And they basically are. I'm going to take everything that I can out of this. Then we have a biblical perspective. And my challenge is going to be is I think sometimes as Christians, we actually do live a little bit like nihilists and hedonists, that we don't understand the material world we live in actually has value. There is value here. The biblical perspective is something we call sacramentalism. Now, you probably recognize that word if you've been around the church world at all because we take the sacraments. And I want you to think about that idea. We take the Lord's Supper, communion. We take grape juice, and we take a cracker, usually a very substandard cracker. i got to talk to somebody about that stuff. I don't know what's going on with that. I feel like we can do better. Um, And we take those things, and how many have ever had a wonderful experience thinking about Jesus and your heart moved thinking about Jesus while you were drinking substandard grape juice and eating bad crackers? How many have ever had that happen? Like you have the Lord move in your heart, just me and my mom and you. All right, fantastic. And so you've had that experience. You just experienced sacramentalism. And what I mean by that is the juice, you drew a line from that red juice, a metaphorical line from that to the blood of Jesus and his love for you. You drew a metaphorical line from the cracker to the body of Christ to his giving his life for you. You drew that line. And what I'd like to suggest to you is the biblical narrative is, is that we should be living all of our lives that way. We should be continually drawing lines from the physical experiences we have to what God is trying to say to us through the material world that he created. So we walk in a posture of prayerfulness in the world that we live in, saying, God, why did you design food? Why did you design beauty? Why did you design pain? Why did you design the feelings that I have? Why did you design sexuality? And what am I to receive from you sacramentally through the experience 
of human sexuality. Those are the three basic kind of perspectives. And if I can maybe illustrate it this way, I want you to imagine that a nihilist, this is a riff on a, on a classic joke, a nihilist and a hedonist and a sacramentalist, they don't walk to a bar, they go into Cheesecake Factory. Ray G, they can't go to the bar. We're going to Cheesecake Factory. They walk into Cheesecake Factory, and the nihilist opens up the menu, that 40-page menu, 20 pages of which is varieties of cheesecake, and they look at themselves and they say, it doesn't matter what I order. They close their eyes. They point to one because all that's going to happen is I'm going to eat it, and I'm gonna, it's going to be meaningless and vanity, and why am I even here? These people are a buzzkill at Cheesecake Factory, okay? The hedonist opens it up and is like, I realize none of this has any value, but I think I'll have a triple-staff hamburger with a mac and cheese on top of it, three slices of bacon, I'll have a milkshake, I'll have some Mountain Dew, four slices of cheesecake, because who knows what could happen tomorrow, and just, I'm going to shove it all in my mouth and make my belly feel good. I know it's not going to last, but it'll be fine. And the third person, the sacramentalist, they walk in, and they're like, forget about the hamburger, forget about the sides, I just want the glory of God, bring me the cheesecake. And they feel the fat and the sugar coursing through their system, causing dopamine to be released in their bodies. They stand up on the table in Cheesecake Factory, throw their hands in the air, tears streaming down their face, and say, glory to God in the highest. He does all things well. That is the sacramentalist. They experience the glory of God in the material world that they live in. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm going to go to Cheesecake Factory, I'm going to go with that person. A person who understands, plus they're super optimistic, they're probably going to pick up the bill, so that's good too. <laughs> so the nihilist leaves depressed again from the Cheesecake Factory because there is no meaning. The hedonist leaves temporarily happy, but how many know that person is not going to feel great in the morning? And the sacramentalist actually has a genuine experience with God and leaves deeply satisfied and grateful for God's goodness in their life. See, because how you perceive the activity you are involved in impacts the experience you have with that activity. Does that make sense? So the Song of Solomon, again, shares this sacramentalist perspective, and it is... uh, written not just about sexuality, though it does call us to think about our sexuality intentionally and theologically and purposefully, but it understands, the Song of Solomon does, sexuality as a sacrament, a place where something sacred is meant, a sacrament. So our physical experiences aren't just pleasurable, that's hedonism, they aren't meaningless, that's nihilism, they are designed to teach us about God and ultimate meaning. So Song of Solomon has three kind of presuppositions about it, and then we'll read the text. The first is, is that it is actually a book about erotic love and sexuality. That is what the book is about. Now, if you have uh, been in the interpretive tradition where it's like it's about Jesus, that's great. I mean, at the end of the day, it is ultimately a sacrament that's designed to teach us about Jesus. How many know you don't get to the thing without taking seriously the thing that signs it? And what signs Jesus is sexuality. That is the metaphor, the sacramental moment that is in our text. So it is primarily at its core about sexuality. It is a book about rightly ordered sexuality, and it is a book that is meant to help us understand that rightly ordered sexuality can actually teach us about God and function as a sacrament in our lives, that it's something sacred and meaningful and beautiful. Okay, So that's the basic purpose of sexuality, of Song of Solomon, is leading us to think about our sexuality as a sacred activity, a sacred part of our lives. So I want to read these two passages. We're going to read Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. We'll be reading through the New Living Translation. 
And then we'll read the end here in just a moment. And what's interesting is these two passages form what we would call in hermeneutics an inclusio. And it just simply means that basically we talk about something once, and then we come back and we talk about that thing again, and then everything in between there is meant to kind of dialogue about what's introduced in that beginning and that end thing. It's kind of like if I were to talk to you today and say, hey, I'm going to talk about sexuality, and then for a little while I was talking about brain science, you would understand that I'm talking about brain science, what, as it relates to what I told you I'm going to talk about, sexuality, and then I would come back and I would talk about it again at the end. These two passages actually mirror each other, and they it's fascinating because they say the same three things, except the second one actually shows a movement in the heart of the lover where they have changed their perspective about sexuality. And that's the, that is the movement that I want to happen in our hearts today. And again, this will apply to you. Some of us, we're going to go, oh my goodness, this is the way I've been working my, my work relationships. Maybe it doesn't affect me sexual-wise, sexual but it affects the way that I've been navigating my work relationships. I have been either functioning as a nihilist or a hedonist, and I need to think about myself as a sacramentalist. It may impact us in other ways if we will pay close attention. So let's read Song of Solomon chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. It says, I am dark but beautiful, O women of Jerusalem, dark as the tents of Kedar, dark as the curtains of Solomon's tents. Don't stare at me because I'm dark. The sun has darkened my skin. My brothers were angry with me, so they forced me to take care of their vineyards, so I couldn't care for myself, my own vineyard. Pay very close attention to that. She could not take care of herself, her own vineyard. Tell me, my love, where are you leading your flock today? Where will your, your, your rest your sheep at noon? For why should I wander like a prostitute among your friends and their flocks? Okay, there are three ideas in this text. The first is, is that the brothers have attempted to desexualize their sister. And let me explain what I mean by that. In the ancient world, in that part of the world, you can imagine that someone who didn't have to work the fields and was able to be indoors all day, it meant that they had what? Money. Okay? And if they had money, they were more desirable. It has nothing to do with ethnicity or race or anything like that. It has to do with the fact that someone who was made to work out in the fields, it automatically signaled they don't have any money. And it made them less desirable as a mate. And so the brothers take their sister and they force her to actually go out and work in their vineyards. And the net effect of that is she becomes very dark. And it's a signal to all the people around her, you d this is a person who you don't want to marry. Because she doesn't have any money. She doesn't have any, any sort of that thing. And what we'll see is in Song of Solomon, it is an attempt to kind of control her sexuality. Men trying to control women's sexuality is not new to the 20th century or the modern era, 21st century now. So they're trying to control that. They're aware that the situation they've put her in of working in the fields will make her so that she is undesirable culturally. The second thing that we see in this text is that she is too sexually strong to be desexualized. And that's not a bad thing, by the way. Her brothers are trying to stamp out her sexuality, but now it actually says, I am, I am in a way tempted now to act immorally. She says, why should I wander around like a prostitute? Like, I am a sexual person, and I am not going to be unsexual, and now you've put me in a situation where I'm undesirable, and so if I'm going to be sexual, I'm going to have to do that in a way that's dysfunctional. Because they have attempted to put a wall around her sexuality. She says, I'm not staying in the wall. I, I wasn't built for the wall. But now you've left me, the other options that I have are not positive. 
there are the idea that I, she has hormones, she has pent-up demands, she is sexual. She wants closeness like all people do. She wants to be loved and to, desire, to be desired. And she understands the undesirability, though, of becoming like a prostitute, but sees it as her only option. And then the third thing is she commits to one person. If you look at the end of it, she says this. She says, tell me, my love, where are you leading your flock today? Where will your sheep rest at noon? For why should I wander? In other words, she recognizes that she has a desire to be sexual, that she should not do it in the way of a prostitute, that she should go and find one person to be committed to, and so on and so forth. But here is the challenge, and here's what I want you to gather from this passage. She says something very important. She is approaching this sexual, per, this sexual relationship from a posture of neediness. She comes to him and she says, I do not have a vineyard of my own. And I am in a way desperate for affection and protection and desirability and closeness. And so now I'm going to come and I'm going to put all bets on this guy. And hopefully he will be able to satisfy me relationally, physically, emotionally, sexually, because I don't have a vineyard of my own. She is depending on him for her well-being. Okay, so point number one, she's attempted to be desexualized by her brothers. Number two, she refuses to be desexualized. And point number three is she says, I think my best bet is to find one human and believe that they will somehow be able to satisfy me. Okay? Now, I want you to turn over to Song of Solomon chapter 8, verses 8 through 12. This is the second part of the inclusio. Remember we talked about those brothers, the one that sent her over into the field to work in the field? Those guys? These guys show up again. These guys have a lot of thoughts about their sister. Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verses 8 through 12. And you might even have right in your text where it says the brothers. This is a dialogue. And here's what the brothers say. We have a little sister. She's too young to have breasts. In other words, she's not quite ready for sexuality yet. But they're thinking about what are we going to do. They're like the dad with a shotgun. My daughter is not of age yet, but what will I do when she becomes of age? That's these guys. They both got their shotguns out. What will we do for our sister if someone asks to marry her? And he, listen to the brother's dialogue. If she is a virgin like a wall, now that is a metaphor. If she does what she's supposed to do, she is supposed to be non-sexual. Hear what I just said. I don't mean she's supposed to be sexual and preserve that sexuality. She is supposed to be non-sexual. If she is like a wall, here's what it says. We will protect her with a silver tower. In other words, they're like, we will celebrate that. Yay, sister who never has sex. Then the other brother, I can imagine, but what if she's promiscuous like a swinging door? We will block her door with a cedar bar. So I want you to pay very close attention to this. They only see two options for sexuality. Prudish anti-sexuality or hedonism. They only see an option of a wall and a door. Those are the only two options. Then the young woman interjects, hey, I'd like to say something about my own body. I was a virgin, like a wall, but now my breasts are like towers. When my lover looks at me, he's delighted in what he sees. Some of you are like, amen. You ever read the Song of Solomon to your spouse? It's great stuff. You just hang out and do the little devotions. Good. 
Solomon has a vineyard at Balhamon, which he leases out to tenant farmers. Each of them pays a 1,000 pieces of silver for harvesting its fruit. Listen to this. Listen to what she says. But my vineyard, wait a minute. In the first part, she didn't have a vineyard. Now, all of a sudden, she has a vineyard. But my vineyard is mine to give, and Solomon does not need to pay. But I will give 200 pieces for those who care for its vines. And there we have our images, a wall, a door, and a garden. Listen to the ideas from the first one. In the first one, we will let our sister be dark so that she is desexualized, and we hear the brothers, let's build a wall around her so that she is desexualized, making her as though sexuality were bad or were meaningless. Then they said, well, what if she's a door? What if she's promiscuous? The door is an acknowledgment that she was sexual, and their fear that she will see uh, sexuality only as a means to an end, just like she was tempted to wander like a prostitute in the first. But in this second version, she has her own garden, is an acknowledgement that the proper approach to sexuality is arriving to it with something meaningful to give, not because we are desperate to get. Let me say that again. The fact that she, in the second version, has her own garden is a sign that we are to arrive at a meaningful sexual relationship with something meaningful to give. I don't mean just sexually. I mean as a person. Not because we need emphasis on the word to get. This is Song of Solomon, though, right? So sexuality isn't just sexuality. It invites us, it invites us to think about God. Sexuality is, a, is powerful, I believe that God wants you and I to not just have healthy, beautiful, life-giving, committed, monogamous, pleasurable sex lives because it is enjoyable. That's all good. But how many know if it ends there, pop quiz, is it nihilism, hedonism, or sacramentalism? If all we say is God gave it to us because it's pleasurable, what is it? It's hedonism. It says, well, God gave it to me and it's good, but it doesn't lead back up to God. It's not sacramental in nature. But to understand that our experiences, our sexual experience and relationships make a significant impact on how I and my partner think about God. But here's the catch. To do that, you and I have to actually engage in and think about sexuality and think about the act of sexuality as Christians, as sacramental people. We can't separate it from our Christian lives. Just like our nihilist and our hedonist and our sacramentalist at the Cheesecake Factory, a nihilist, a hedonist, and a sacramentalist will have a fundamentally different experience when they experience sexuality. Yes? So I'm going to give us three things that we can do to help us make love and think about sexuality like a Christian. Are we doing okay? Does anyone need to stop for a break, maybe some deep breathing? We're doing okay? Okay, not, not that kind of deep breathing. Not that kind of deep breathing. Three things we're going to do, okay? Number one, the first thing we need to do if we want to think like a Christian is we have to tear down the walls. And by that, I mean ideologically and emotionally and relationally. The brothers have attempted to desexualize their sister. And, you know, many people do this to themselves and they do it to other people. No one by nature has walls against human sexuality. Here's how I want you to think about sexuality. In the way that our culture thinks about it, all kinds of human touch and interaction operate on one spectrum, but sexuality is somehow different. But sexuality is just an amplification or an extension of normal physical touch. Now that being said, it is privileged because it is covenantal. It is privileged because it is inside the context of a marriage and so on and so forth, but it doesn't operate on different sort of intellectual 
math. We are built to be touched, and ideally, when it's healthy, it makes us feel cared for, and it makes us feel nurtured, and it makes us feel affirmed. I mean, who doesn't want to feel that? How many of us have been in a moment where we were desperately in need, and someone gave us appropriate, physical, nurturing, caring touch, and it helped a whole ton? And how many of us have had our emotions damaged when someone gave us physical touch that was not what we needed, not what we wanted? Someone struck us, someone hurt us, someone took advantage of us. We are impacted by physical touch, period. You don't get to go away from that. And when you try to put a margin on that, a boundary on that, you are very literally building a wall against a mechanism that God has created for you to receive his love sacramentally and to give love to others sacramentally. We are built for touch and built up by touch when it is healthy, and we are built for sexuality. If you don't believe me, I've got one word for you. It's called biology. Our bodies respond to touch, and we come with sexual equipment standard on just about every make and model. If it's helpful for me, let me explain it this way using explosives, because the more touch that we give to somebody, the more powerful it is to them. So, for instance, if I just meet somebody, I'm probably going to give them a handshake. Why? Because we don't have the kind of relationship where they can feel vulnerable enough or I can feel vulnerable enough to have more physical contact because we don't have trust established yet. But then I might get to know you for a while, and I might walk, in, I might walk up and I might give you one of them holy, holy ghost side hugs. Because why? Because now we know each other a little better, our trust is a little higher, and I'm willing to give you more access because access is opportunity for pain. But it's also opportunity to receive the love of God. So if I were to take explosives metaphor, a handshake is a firecracker, and I might say that a nice side hug might be the next level up. It might be one of those, uh, might be one of those little imports you have to go to. A, used to have to go to another state to get. Remember to get the big firecrackers. But then sexuality is on that same scale, and it's like the mother of all bombs, the Moab, the bunker buster that we drop from planes. It is like it is like an atomic bomb because we are giving full access and vulnerability to touch, which means access, opportunity for pain opportunity for blessing. You cannot escape that dynamic. It is sacramental. And when you cut off the opportunity for affection, you cut off the opportunity to give, you cut off the opportunity to show someone God's love, and when you cut off the opportunity to receive, you cut off the opportunity to receive God's love. This is important stuff. We behave as though touch is important too. We give more physical access to people we trust more. In fact, if you go to the scriptures, I think just to pour salt in the wound, we learn that Jesus is betrayed not with a handshake but with a kiss because it means trust. It means vulnerability. And we cannot pretend that sexuality exists on a different plane. So why would we build walls around it? Well, we might build walls because of injury or trauma or fear. People resist touch and closeness when they have experienced or imagined they will experience or culture has taught them that closeness and pain go hand in hand. People have simply decided that the cost outweighs the benefit of being physically close to another person. Notice how when someone is angry with you, they pull away. 
I'm sure you've never had this with a little child. You're trying to talk to them, and they're upset at you. And you go to pull them in to let them know everything is okay, and they turn around and kind of give you this. Or you have been fighting with your spouse, and you reach over to touch them. I know this would never happen here, but I'm talking about the sinners that you know. That you've been fighting with your spouse, and you reach over to touch them, and they just give you the butt. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like they just roll over, and it is like not right now. What are they saying? You have made me angry, and angry is the result of of pain and fear, and right now I don't trust you enough to give you physical access. We behave as though physical access and emotional access and spiritual access go together because they do. This is why it's important for us to remember all these things operate on the same spectrum. It isn't something that is different, sexuality, than different kinds of touch. It is simply the most powerful kind of human touch. The culture can pretend that sexuality can be treated as an object or commodity all they want, and culture does try. I'll just give you a simple example. I don't mean to badmouth any particular show or whatever, but if you think about the show Friends, five characters have 85 sex partners over the course of the years. Five have 85 sex partners, and nobody ever has any significant emotional fallout from it. And the challenge is is that people grow up believing, well, that's the case then. I can treat it like an object. I can engage in it. It doesn't have any effect on me. And I can just tell you, as a family with my mother, invest in in terms of people who have been injured by sexuality, in terms of the students who come into my classroom, it is a lie. You cannot strip sexuality of its power. It has has power it carries with it because it demands vulnerability. And the minute you have vulnerability, you have power. You have access to either pain or benefit. And culture knows this. It defies common sense. I mean, if you think about it, you know the song, Sometimes when we touch, what does it say? The honesty is too much. We know this. You cannot separate Physical access from emotional access and spiritual access. You can't. It's not the way that it works. The Me Too movement admits that there's something special about sexual touch. If it is nothing, it isn't nothing. If there were men going around, I think, maliciously stealing pumpkin spice lattes from women or bottled water from women, women would just say, okay, that's stupid. Stop taking my water and my pumpkin spice latte. Right? But it is a different level of victimization when what you take is a person's body. We know this, that there is something different. The stats say differently. When a murder is committed against a woman, in nearly 50% of incidents, it was done by someone the woman has been sexually active with. Why? Because it opens up a world of pain, emotional access, that is only possible because of the physical access. Even our laws say differently. If I were to walk down the street today, which I will not, and give people random unwanted handshakes, the police would come to me and say, you need to stop doing that. How many know if you walk around and you do other things to somebody physically, they're going to do more? Why? Because we acknowledge that there are different levels of physical touch that are only appropriate as people gain trust. Why? Because they demand vulnerability. And vulnerability is access. And access can lead to pain or it can lead to benefit. And this is why the brothers, I think, want her to be a wall. Probably these brothers really don't have another way to think about sexuality. They probably think about sexuality as a commodity. And so they can only imagine their sister as being asexual or being a commodity because it's the way they see the world. So be a wall. We might build walls because we lack sacramental imagination. I think the other reasons the brothers want her to be a wall 
they send her to the field to desexualize her is they lack the capacity to see sexuality as something beautiful and life-giving and sacred. And they're thinking a guy is either non-sexual or an objectifying woman using man. And a woman is either non-sexual or a woman of ill repute who gets used by objectifying men. What we don't celebrate and we don't celebrate in our culture is the, the sort of slow-burning, vulnerable beauty of a sexuality that sees uh, sexual touch as a privileged moment of access to another human being where we are able to actually give the grace of God, the mercy of God, the care and the compassion of God in a way that no other human gets the opportunity to. I think if we're honest, we have an inherent uh, suspicion inside the church that sexuality is bad because we have had our imagination driven by the cultural narrative that there are only two options, wall, door, wall, door. This is where culture's at. People are objects. I order them on Amazon Prime with free two-day shipping. I love them, celebrate them until I don't. Then I discard them. Many people only have two kinds of relationships in their life. They have awesome relationships and no relationships. Because the minute you stop being awesome, you are not desirable. In fact, we have a code word for that, toxic. Sometimes I think toxic people are just normal people. Now, there are toxic people, but how many in here will admit that you, on occasion, can be toxic? How many are glad Jesus is not up in heaven going, you know, I need to get rid of all the toxic relationships in my life? The church would be empty. But we have this kind of commodified view of people, that people are an object, but there is a vacuum in the church of meaningful sexuality. We lack sacramental imagination. Let me tell you how you can know if you have built a wall for yourself or for someone else. If we automatically feel negatively, perhaps even dirty, if we are interested in the subject of sexuality, it's a pretty good sign that we're operating out of a wall narrative. If we automatically think of our spouse negatively if they're interested in sex, in fact, some of us have actually built walls around our spouses because we cannot think of them as sexual and as being good people at the same time. It's a sign that we have a wall mentality about sexuality. And we can pass this on to our teens by only speaking negatively about sexuality. Teens, I've got news for us, are sexual. Their bodies are ready. The desire is real. Somewhere some teen is going, amen. And that is not just okay, it's great. It's for a purpose. We should actually celebrate the sexuality of our teenagers. That desire for another person, not a body, but for another person. To be close with and to be intimate with and to meaningfully share life with is a God-given desire and beautiful. It is not something to be stuffed down and compressed and said, it's bad, it's bad, it's bad, it's bad, it's bad, it's bad, and now all of a sudden you have permission. It's like, man, I can't wait until you have that opportunity to express that kind of love and intimacy and vulnerability with another person. It's going to be awesome. I can't wait for that for you. But I think sometimes we have trained the next generation to be walls and doors. Because the fact is, is people aren't going to be walls. We are sexual by nature. And so what's going to happen is we're going to, we're going to get people in a cycle of wall and door. They're going to go, because we're Christians, they're going to act like a door. They're going to use pornography. They're going to be engaged in sexual immorality somehow. And now they're going to feel guilty and they go, I'm a wall, I'm a wall, I'm a wall, I'm a wall. No, you are a dam. And the pressure is building up behind that. And it is going to burst. And then you're going to go, I'm a wall, I'm a wall, I'm a wall. Instead of going, I'm a garden. Let's take care of this garden. 
Let's get this garden ready. Let's get it prepared. Like, it is okay to own my sexuality. These feelings that I have are good. They're wonderful. Now, I have to cultivate them. I've got to prune them. I've got to pair them. But I also celebrate them. Because, praise the Lord, harvest day is coming. The second, I'll try to move through these quickly, is we can nail the door shut. The door person is the hedonist who wanders like a prostitute from person to person looking for care or experience to experience with the same person looking for affirmation and pleasure and love. Please forgive me for for being direct. I probably already have been. But it's really important to know that in the equation of the Song of Solomon, the prostitute isn't getting money. She's getting security and affirmation. You realize that we can prostitute ourselves for more than just cash. We can have a prostitute mentality without accepting money. For some people, they will be moving from relationship to relationship looking for pleasure, for some for fulfillment, for others for someone to make them okay, but their sexuality is for sale to the highest bidder emotionally or experientially or provisionally. If we can simplify it, hedonism views sexuality and sensual pleasure associated with it as an end unto itself. It is good in that it views sexuality as positive, but it never moves it up from the material to the sacramental level and understands what the role of that pleasure is in God's economy. I feel like I'm you know, maybe risking by saying this, but I'm already in the pool, so it's fine. I think that this is a, there is a really damaging way in which this impacts Christian marriages. I have come to believe through a lot of conversations that we have many, many church people in the community of faith who essentially treat their spouse as a pleasure object when it comes to sexuality. They have swapped them out for pornography and said, I can't use porn because I'm a Christian, so now I will use you. And you will fulfill my desires and you will fulfill my appetites rather than viewing the person as someone to love and to nurture and to care for and treating them as a person that we've been giving access to. See, our brains let us know that sexuality isn't just a pleasure experience. In fact, when we experience sexuality in a way that makes an object of the other person, some of the brain chemicals that would normally be released that make us feel full and satisfied don't get released in the brain. They actually leave us sexually hungrier than when we started. That's why people go to more bizarre extremes and begin to push the envelope on their sexuality because what they're missing isn't more extreme sexuality. They're missing the meaningfulness of their sexuality. They're missing the, closeful, the closeness. So we have to refuse to allow sexuality to be just about pleasure. And the third thing we need to do is plant a sacred garden for our spouses. I love that distinction in the first and the second story. In the first one, she's, she is kind of needy. And by the way, it could be the guy just as well as it could be the woman, just happens to be the woman in this one. She's kind of needy. She's kind of dependent. She's like, I don't have a garden, and I'm needy emotionally. I'm needy materially. I'm needy, needy in every aspect of my life. And if I could just find a guy who would take care of me, as I said, we could take the guy just as easy. I'm needy. I'm needy. I'm needy. If I could just find the woman who would take care of me and fulfill me. But if we move over to the second one, she comes to it already in a place of personal abundance. I have news for you. That two broken people don't make a whole marriage. And two broken lovers don't make life-giving sexuality. Two whole people make a healthy marriage. And two whole lovers make life-giving sexuality. 
that question of why we actually are sexual is an important question. Are we nihilists that, you know, sexuality is pain, and therefore I'm just going to build a wall about around it and avoid it? It's bad in some way. Am I going to be a hedonist and just say it's all about pleasure, and the person who I engage with is the, is the object that is defined to deliver that pleasure to me? Or am I going to behave as a sacramentalist? You know, we know that people learn about God from their experiences with people. I'll give you just one example. Alex Bierman's study, The Effects of Childhood Maltreatment on Adult Religiosity and Spirituality, found that in research sample after research sample, victims of paternal abuse tend to have more negative views of God and are less likely to believe in God and are less likely to be involved in organized religion or not practice religion. In fact, we can take some young people who've been involved in paternal abuse and and we can have them do something where, where they get down and they recite the Lord's Prayer. What are the first words of the Lord's Prayer? Our Father. And we can watch their poor little anxiety levels just spike through the roof. See, the way that a human has interacted with them has impacted the way that they now interact with God. You realize that's actually part of the design. That when God creates us in the Garden of Eden, he says, I make you image of God. Imago Dei. From the very beginning, the single most powerful way that I learn about God is the way I interact with another person who's made in God's image. If you listen to that research study, what it basically says is this. That if I don't love this woman well, my job, missionally, God's structure that he created is that I love this woman well. And because of the way I love her, when she goes to talk to God, she has a vocabulary already built for what it's like to be loved. She has a vocabulary already built for what it's like to be forgiven. She has a vocabulary already built for what it's like to give someone access and trust and for them not to abuse that trust, but to take the opportunity to have that trust to do something meaningful and beneficial and life-giving and caring and gracious. And if I don't do that, it's going to negatively impact her ability to think that way about God. So in some ways... When we engage in sexuality, if it is the most powerful kind of physical human experience in terms of physicality, it is one of the most potent opportunities we have to teach our spouses about the nature and character of God. Give it three things and I'll close very, very quickly. Three things that we can do if we are in a married relationship. Our garden should have the fruit growing that convinces our spouse they're loved by God as an imperfect person and not as an object. Meaning that when we engage in sexuality, pleasure can't be the primary outcome. This is the nature of vulnerability. All of us have this kind of thing. How many, how many will admit in here that you are a self-conscious human being? I, one thing I figured out, I've spent time with bajillionaires and bedrokenaires. And every single person in the world is self-conscious. And now... We do this crazy thing where we get into a room with our spouse and we take off our clothes and we can see that I'm maybe 
begging a little and dragging a little and sagging a little. We can see that I did, in fact, skip, skip ab day for the last 20 years of our marriage. We can see the emotional stuff that we carry into the relationship. We can see the ethical stuff that we carry into the relationship. And in that moment of absolute vulnerability, our job at that moment in a culture that teaches people, if you are a bad object, I will reject you. Our job in that moment is to look at somebody who in fact is not a perfect object. I'm not a perfect object. My wife isn't a perfect object. You're not a perfect object. You're a person. A person with scars, wounds, history, future, good, bad. And it's an opportunity to look at our spouse and say, you are accepted and you are loved and you are acceptable and you are lovable just like you are. Just as you are. It's one of the reasons that I just detest the impact that pornography and sexual fantasy has had on our marriages because it says to our spouse, you will be acceptable to me when you become someone different than who you are. Number two, our garden should have the fruit that convinces our spouse they're worth being desired, known, committed to, and will never be rejected for another. Our faithfulness to our spouse teaches them that God is in fact faithful. And number three, our gardens should have the fruit that convinces our spouse that forgiveness and grace come easy in the kingdom of God. I'll give you two passages and we'll pray. I love this in 1 Corinthians in uh, chapter 11. If you've been around the church world for any length of time, you know it. We do it every time we take that juice and the cracker. It says, on the day that the Lord was betrayed, what? He took the cup. And he actually says something really important right there. What does he say? He says, this is my body. I'm giving it to you. And what's fascinating is four chapters later, when Paul is talking about the way that sexuality works in the community of faith, he looks at the husband and he looks at the wife and he says, oh, by the way, your body, you give it to your spouse. Now I know... Whenever I use that passage, I always cringe a little bit because I'm aware in a context like this, there might be people in here. How many know you can, you can actually abuse someone sexually with Scripture? And we could have people in here who their spouse looked at them and said, I demand that you give me what is mine. No, this is demanding that I give, not demanding that someone else give. But it says that just as Christ loves the church, like in Ephesians, that I don't withhold, I give. And I say to that person when I give, this is my body. You may have hurt me, you may have injured me, you may not be perfect, you may not be all of that, but I want you to know you are still worth being loved. You are still worth being committed to. You are still worth being faithful to. You are still desired. You are still wanted. You are still pursued. You are still the person who has my heart's desire. You are still all of those things. And in a moment like that, if we take that kind of opportunity and we are not faithful to that moment, we should not be surprised the emotional damage, the spiritual damage that it inflicts on the other person. So not treating the person as an object, teaching people that forgiveness comes easy and teaching them that fidelity and faithfulness are possible in God are a big, big deal. I don't really know 
you know, how you close something like this. I, I don't think that we want to say, hey, if you've been treating everybody in your life like a sex object, come forward. I'm thinking the response would be small. I don't think we want to have people come forward and, you know, teenagers, if you're struggling with sexuality, come forward. I think that's just a given. I don't think we want to add shame or embarrassment or harm to anybody. But I do think I want to say this. That if you are not in a relationship that sexuality would be appropriate, you still have meaningful relationships in your life. And we still have a responsibility and an opportunity to give and receive love in ways that are meaningful. And these exact same dynamics function there. That we have a responsibility to be open enough that people can give to us and open enough that we can give to other people. A second thing that I would say is I would encourage you, if you are in a married relationship, to work very, very hard at asking yourself, what do I view as success in my sexual relationship? Because if it's pleasure, then you are a hedonist. If it's getting it over with as quickly as possible, you are a nihilist. If it's how do I take this opportunity to actually demonstrate to my spouse that in the most beautiful, sacred, and vulnerable way, they are deeply loved, deeply committed to, worth being forgiven. Now we are moving in the Christian tradition. Now we are acting as sacramentalists. And now we have the opportunity to do real spiritual good. So do me a favor and stand with me for a moment. I'm going to pray. They're going to lead us in worship for a moment. And then uh, Pastor Joel is going to come and close us. So, Father, I ask you today that as we've been talking about sexuality, that we would take it to heart, God, that those of us who may be in our place where that's not a part of our lives at the moment for whatever reason, that we will be reflective and ask ourselves, am I withholding myself in other ways from people, that I could be blessing them, that I could be encouraging them, that I could be letting them know they are committed to and loved by God? Am I shutting other people out? And that's actually impacting my relationship with you because I'm not being loved and I don't have a vocabulary for the kind of love that you have. Would you help us, Lord? Father, for marriages in this place, I ask you that this would be a prophetic community. And what I mean by that is the world is so broken, so broken on this issue, that when they come into this place, they would find people who are not doors, who are not walls, but they are experiencing life in their sexuality. It's redemptive, it's beautiful, it's sacred, it's important. And they would see that for the first time in their life, that there are not only two ways to think about this thing. And then finally, God, I pray for those friends in this room that the minute we start talking about this subject, I'm deeply aware that there may be some pain that is incredible. We may have been used by a spouse. We may have been harmed by a person. There may just be so much fear and self-consciousness that comes with that vulnerability that we can't even begin to think what the first step would look like. God, I pray that you would not only begin a healing and restoring work in the heart, but that you would surround our friends with people who have stories of hopefulness, that you would surround them with people who know how to help grow, who know how to apply the gospel in a way that brings life. And I pray, Lord, that you'd bring restoration and healing. This is one of your good things. And we pray that it would be restored and that it would be reclaimed. Just as your word says, behold, I make all things new. 
this doesn't escape that regeneration that happens in your kingdom. And I pray you'd start that process in Jesus' name. Amen.